Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this show I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. If you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave us a review on Apple iTunes or wherever else you listen to this podcast. You can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support it directly on Patreon, where patrons of the show receive exclusive behind-the-scenes content and special episodes. Thank you for supporting the show. We'll start our episode in a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering. If you're an engineering business that could benefit from new materials and manufacturing processes, then Sampi might be the ideal partner for you. Sampi is the only technical society that provides enhanced educational opportunities, knowledge transfer, and professional engagement in all fields of materials and processes. To find out how Sampi can provide your business with growth and educational opportunities, visit Sampi's website at nasampe.org or consider attending one of Sampi's conferences, such as the Sampi Technical Conference and Exhibition, hosted in sunny Long Beach, California, in May this year. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. In this episode, I'm talking to Neil Cloughley, who's the founder and CEO of Fairdare, the UK's leading hybrid aviation program. Neil has an incredibly diverse background in the aviation industry, ranging from aircraft remarketing and aircraft leasing to his own aircraft consultancy business, which included working with the world's airlines, OEMs, and companies like Virgin America and Virgin Galactic. His father was an entrepreneur who developed one of the most innovative unmanned aerial vehicles in the 1990s well before the American Predator program. Unfortunately, as a result of being slightly ahead of its time and due to a lack of funds and unfortunate timing, ASVEC UK had to close its doors. Neil is now stepping into his father's footsteps and building the Bioelectric Hybrid Aircraft, or BHA, a six-passenger aircraft with a hybrid gas and electric propulsion system which is to be used for regional travel of around 200 miles. The BHA has an unconventional design with a triple staggered wing an all-composite airframe, and a ducted propeller. These design decisions reflect the three key specifications that need to be met to make regional intercity flight a reality. That is, minimizing noise, emissions, and operational costs. In this conversation, Neil and I talk about the engineering behind BHA, the challenging economics of new aviation businesses, and his long-term vision for a regional Uber-like taxi service in the sky. So please enjoy my conversation with Fairdare's Neil Cloughley. All right, so I'm here with Neil Cloughley, who is the founder of a new airspace startup called Faraday. And before we start talking about your company, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, where to start? Uh, firstly, um, always had an interest in aircraft. Um, I played football as a youngster quite seriously, and that was looking like a career. Um, and then got an interest in airplanes. Uh, stupid films like Top Gun do that to you. Um, and so joined the Air Cadets and then had to make a choice because my father turned around to me and said, I'm not your taxi service. 
you can't be playing football three times a week and cadets two times a week. Which one are you doing? So um, I chose um, I chose the aerospace side. A friend of mine ended up going professional footballer and used to play with and played for Arsenal and various things. So what could have been wasn't. Um, and got told my eyesight wasn't quite good enough to be fighter pilot when the time came. So uh, thought about going army and helicopter pilot and then realised that probably military career wasn't going to be my, my career. So uh, got into the IT market at that point. Um, uh, had a, a near miss of something that was going to be quite big, which was being involved with a tablet computer. Uh, this was in 2001. We took it to the Seabit Trade Fair in Hanover. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Four years before Apple supposedly invented the tablet. Um, it was working with Siemens. And uh, we demonstrated email connectivity uh, with Sun Microsystems in partnership. And uh, that really was my grounding into getting partnerships coming together and working with big companies and pulling them partners together on a program. So that was way ahead of its, its time. We were using GPRS to send emails to down the hall and things. But of course, when my colleague went off down the hall to send the email back to me, he was stood next to the Apple stand when he did it with this thing in his hand. So yeah. who knows what could have been. But um, so from that, uh, the market, obviously the IT market had a big crash. Um, I ended up scratching my head as to what on earth I was going to do and ended up uh, applying for a job to basically remarket commercial jets, um, which I didn't know at the time. It was just it was an aviation sales role. Um, and selling is, is something I've obviously always been involved in from the, the IT side of things. And um, my father um, had a, a UAV business when I was growing up. Uh, and so I've always had that passion and, and interest in the aircraft. So I, I ended up in this um, commercial aircraft remarketing company and whose, in fact, 20th birthday party I'm going to on Thursday up in London. I've been invited to that, um, which is great. Um, and basically got into the fact because I knew what aircraft were. So um, when you're talking about them, you know which ones they are, what the models are, and it was just adding the sales process to learning the different types of aircraft. So so that was how I got into that. But obviously um, my father's input, um, growing a business from uh, he when he came out of the police force, he, he set up this company that was involved in the unmanned air vehicle market, so the surveillance birds. Um, very embryonic. This is like the 1980s. Um, they were called RPVs back in those days, remote piloted vehicle. So this is now called a UAV. UAV, yeah, unmanned air vehicle, yeah. because uh, that's mainly Americans do that. They have a tendency to do that. Where it's a Honda Accord around the rest of the world, it becomes an Acura or something else. Uh-huh. Uh, so we got a different title. Um, but it was uh, a very um, embryonic um, industry. Um, there were some very big defense players in it. And, and what I got to see was uh, a guy working all hours to pull together a business and a team and a manufacturing team to create these military drones and target drones and, and such like. Um, and unfortunately, he just got caught out with a, a perfect storm in the market when Gulf War One came along, um, uh, which he was involved in another contract and it, it cost the company. Um, the contract was cancelled and, and the company didn't survive. But the assets of the business were sold to an American group who then won an $80 million U.S. Marine research contract and took the assets of the company and, and did very well with it. And and it was a great shame because his vision, um, I mean, we had a we had the combat drone sitting on the ramp, which I've shown you pictures of, obviously. And um, this was four years before the Americans created the Predator. I mean, he was way ahead of the curve. We had 
a platform that would have been world leading. Um, but UK government has been notoriously bad at supporting um, British aerospace companies, uh, even back to Mitchell's days, in the days of the Spitfire. Um, he was told to go away and come back with something with material and two wings and wood, and, and he didn't, and he demonstrated his low-wing metal fighter. And the world in 1936 was a very different place to the world in 1934. But that principle still applies today. Um, we haven't really learnt to look at the future and the opportunity of things. And therefore, government sort of sometimes reacts with a point of view of, if I make no decision, it can't be the wrong decision. And if I am going to make a decision, I'll give it to people who I think are learned enough that if they say this is the way it should be, then I can't really go wrong with that. Mm -hmm. So um, he obviously, his business didn't quite survive, sadly. Um, but from that, I obviously got a, a real grounding in, in both starting a business, running a small manufacturing team, uh, working in a sort of SME startup environment back in those days. This is before the whole brouhaha of startups now. Um, and um, and so obviously in the commercial market, it stood me in very good ground. So I ended up out in San Francisco. Uh, I got headhunted to go out to a company out there and set up shop in SF, which was great. I was out there in 2005 uh, until 2009. I was there four years. Um, loved it. Great lifestyle. Great place to live. Uh, everything's within three hours that you could possibly want. <laughs> you can have snow, beach, sand, desert. Whatever you want is within three hours. So mm -hmm. from that perspective, it's great. Um, as a as a Brit in the Bay Area, you do stand out a little. There's a lot of Brits out there, actually. It's staggering how many Brit voices you hear sometimes. But um, yes, they have a different view and uh, manner of how they do things. And that's good and bad. Uh, and in fact, uh, I would say the, the thing that I most admire about Americans and most admire about that particular um, area is the 20 reasons why you can do something. You'll come up with an idea, and now let's face it, there's an awful lot of ideas out there which are completely lunatic. Um, but they'll back it. I mean, if you look at recent backings, uh, let's say that there is, I'm not going to mention names, but there is the Uber for Dogs, which raised wow. $350 million. I've not heard of this. And you're sitting there going, what? <laughs> <laughs> and how much money? Yeah. And how much money have they got to make in order to make that back? And, and I sort of come from the old school economics type of thing. We make for this, we sell for that, we make a margin of that. Mm -hmm. That's the way it should be. That's mm -hmm. the way businesses should survive. Um, it doesn't happen now. But out there, there is this get it out there, ramp it up, hit big numbers and... Um, there is, for example, there's one particular app at the moment that's advertised everywhere. I turn on a PC telling me about how I should be writing better. Mm -hmm. um, I won't say the name again. I'll get myself in trouble. <laughs> um, but again, it's just bombard, bombard, bombard. They have so much money that they're just throwing at things. And there's going to be hits and misses, swings and misses and, and such like, but uh, they back stuff. And I can't knock that. Um, in the UK, we have a traditionally defeatist mentality. There's uh, 20 reasons why you shouldn't do something. Um, and they'll probably even tell you why you shouldn't be doing it and mm -hmm. why you should be doing it a different way. Um, so from that perspective, it's very good. They've obviously, Americans have got some of their own issues. Um, they know that. They know them as many as much as anybody. Um, uh, but from that perspective, um, it was enabling me to work with and see different environments and things. So 
Um, when I was working in leasing aircraft and, and developing business models of acquiring aircraft and selling them and trading, you get a very good understanding of how the market works, what does work, what doesn't work. How does the economic model work? How does the cost per passenger work? Um, all these types of things you sort of look at and you say, okay, uh, that's interesting. That's, that's something to just park in the back of the mind that that doesn't work. Um, so from that, I get to work with some great companies, people like Virgin America. Um, when you saw them start, I mean, I went to the, the opening party of that in San Francisco. It's very drunken, I think, off of one of their trolleys going around the city with <laughs> some of their crew. But um, great fun. Mr. Branson was there himself. And uh, it was I'd been working with them for a couple of years prior to them being kicking off those operations, their first flight, uh, because obviously the legacy carriers blocked them. And they did all that they could to block them. Um, because of the threat of an incoming somebody who'd do something different. And it was different. I mean, this was the first group that had mood lighting in their airplanes. Mm -hmm. You walk on board and it was going from pink to purple instead of that sort of yellowy colored light that you get on most fuselages. It was like, wow, this is cool. This is like a nightclub. Um, but of course, they weren't allowed to fly. And so they had a whole bunch of aircraft coming off the line from Airbus because they're still producing them and they're just being parked on the ramp. Well, that's money sitting burning away. So I was tasked with putting some of those aircraft out on lease. Um, uh, some said that I should have been given the Tom Cruise moniker for that one because it was an almost Mission Impossible. Um, <laughs> there was uh, green tubes that required fitment of interiors. I mean, there was nothing in these things. Uh, no IFE and everything else. Lease return conditions and all this sort of stuff. And they've got to go out to a carrier for the best part of 18 months before they want them back when Virgin America should be flying. So it was a real challenging project, but you got to see not only that we were successful, we got them placed away and um, and it all panned out very well, but you got to see how a startup airline works and you got to see the challenges that they face and um, that side of things, which then led me to working with Virgin Galactic later. Um, and uh, I have to say, there is a salesperson at Pratt & Whitney who did an excellent job. I don't know who he is, but whoever or who she is, whoever it is, did a great job because White Knight 2, the mothership, carries a Pratt & Whitney 308 engines. Uh, I think the only other aircraft in the world that was flying them at the time was something like the Gulfstream 4000, uh, not the Gulfstream 4000, the uh, Hawker 4000 business jet, which was on its last legs as a demise as a business jet. So there wasn't really a market for these engines, and yet they obviously had a bunch of them lying around, which they sold to... Virgin Galactic to put on White Knight 2, which is great, did very well. The problem comes is when you've got spares and you want to then do a um, financial agreement to do sale and leasebacks or things like that, and of course it's not a huge market. So that was another challenge then. So we look at that. But again, we got successful offers and, and deals. But looking at Galactic um, and looking at how um, that faced a whole different raft of challenges. Um, and, and decisions made um, of you take four rocket motors and put them on the table. One is traditional sort of Apollo 11 type technology, and the other end is completely state-of-the-art, brand-new type of fuel that's never been done before type thing, and which one are we going to pick? Those sorts of decisions I find fascinating because you have to combine not only your wish and desire from uh, advancement and innovation perspective to is this stable? Does this work? Um, does this do the job that we want it to do? Um, and so those sorts of challenges and those decisions um, 
they're interesting to, to see. Yeah. Uh, and it teaches yeah. you a lot about your decision-making process and how you, you do things. So, so all of that was sort of building me up to a point that when I came out of the commercial aerospace market um, in probably around about, I think, 2012 or 13, I was thinking um, I need to do something different. This, this market's going a particular way. The traditional models that were there are, are disintegrating. They're no longer there. Um, and it's it's a different type of market now, being dominated by a lot of big funds buying a lot of more new aircraft. Um, so the trading and uh, secondary leasing market is is becoming uh, more difficult. But more importantly, um, I made a promise, which I think I said in a, a video I did at the Royal Air Society uh, lecture I gave there. Um, and when my father's company uh, didn't make it, I mean, we sat down and, and it was a very emotional day and, and you sort of make a promise to your father, as you do as a young man, and you sort of say, right, well, we'll do something with this. Right? I will, we'll make, I'll make sure that your efforts will be rewarded and, and we'll, we'll make this happen. Yeah. So things like joined wing technology. I mean, the, the joined wing UAV that had the combat UAV, there's no joined wing aircraft out there. You look at all the latest design concepts from Boeing and Airbus and everything, we're talking about electric distributed propulsion. They've all got joined wings and things now. And we had it sitting on the ramp in 1990. Um, so he was very, very far ahead of his time. And I wanted to make sure that that was um, coming to fruition because it yeah. still has merit. But more importantly, let's look at it from a commercial perspective. Um, so I thought, right, well, you have to set up a company and do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, you know, summarizing your, your broad background was really fascinating. What I find really fascinating about you is that, yeah, you've got this, you've got a father who's, he sounds like he's very influential for you as a child mm -hmm. doing great things in aerospace technology. The business doesn't really turn out uh, the way you would like to because the tech, because perhaps the marketplace isn't there yet or the mm -hmm. technology isn't there yet hundred percent. So he's ahead of the curve. But then you basically go down more of an economic route and you get really, you know, your hands dirty with how do you actually sell aircraft? What does the business model look like? You, you move and look at all these different other, you know, business models at Virgin Galactic, at Virgin Atlantic, all these different companies. And it's almost like all of this is now coming together mm -hmm. at Faraday. Yeah. Um, and that to me is, is really exciting. And I, I think so you said about some of the differences about the UK uh, and, and America. So... You could probably say the same thing about Frank Whittle, right? So Frank Whittle, sure. you know, came up with the concept of the jet engine, I think probably 1932. Mm -hmm. Hans von Ohain in Germany was maybe slightly later, but he had government funding. Yeah. And there, thereby, you know, he was the first to then basically put it onto an aircraft. Frank Whittle was a bit later. So, yeah, there are interesting kind of mm -hmm. uh, antagonistic almost business models there where one is maybe state funded, the other one is a bit more private. And uh, I'll give you an example which ties into that beautifully, which has synergy with what we're talking about. Who was the first triplane flyer in the world? Well, I mean, if I was just going to say off the top of my head, you know, Richthofen comes to mind because exactly. he's the Red Baron. But yeah. I mean, given, I don't know if... It... Sop with triplane. Yeah. 1916. So yeah. two years before Fokker did the DR1, the Brits were flying the triplane, but nobody remembers the British triplane. They always remember the Red Baron because he was just this huge character. Um, and that's in exactly the same vein that you've just said. It's, I think, very much the Germanic model is, is see an idea, this looks good, we should push this, go for it. Um, here, it's like you have to convince 50 million people uh, in the decision process, which is as long as your arm, of why we should be doing it. We, 
we've always been naturally reserved. Um, Barnes Wallace came up with the idea of bouncing a bomb across water. Mm-hmm. The amount of people who said he was should have been locked up in a lunatic asylum. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, don't be ridiculous. You bounce it on the water, it's going to go bang. Uh, he said, no, I've got an idea. And he came up with something that was just astonishing. Um, and that, I think, is... If you look throughout history, you look at the Harrier jump jet, you look at what we've done with Concorde, you look at what we did with the Vulcan as a flying wing, as a bomber and things, and the Lightning as a fighter interceptor, I mean, still one of the best high-level interceptors there's ever been. Um, And we have the Comet jet airliner, for goodness sake. I mean, the first jet airliner out there. The UK and, and Britain has just had this wonderful history of aviation, innovation development. Uh, as a result, that's very attractive to foreign companies who come in and go, yep, well, we'll have you, and then we'll have you, and now we'll take you. And so you end up with an industry which is shrinking, um, and you end up with a couple of big players. And yes, they employ a lot of people, and yes, there's a lot of work and generated and everything, and blah, blah, blah. But we've lost a lot of that that true innovation from the smaller garages, those little tiny workshops where yeah, the, the mad scientists. Tablets, yeah. yeah, it's like I'm going to do this. I'm yeah. going to launch an orange to Jupiter. Yeah, why would you do that? Yeah, because I can. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I guess that, so. That's where your new company, where Faraday, comes in. Exactly. And I, basically, it launches from the the efforts of your father, who was building UAVs. Um, and multiple multi-wing UAVs, mm-hmm. and you're basically now developing or part of this technology further into an entirely new market or, or slightly new market, which is uh, bioelectric aircraft. But mm. before we start about yeah. talking about the technology, so I guess Faraday is maybe an homage to Michael Faraday to some degree. Yep. And then I would probably maybe also say perhaps it's also an homage to English inventiveness to, yeah. to some to some say. Would you say that's yeah. accurate? Yeah, I mean, it is... It's, Weird, because when I was coming up with the idea sort of back in chewing around the idea of what I might be thinking of what I wanted to do in sort of 2012, 2013, um, I finally got the sort of green light um, from family and friends uh, to say, yeah, let's do this, let's launch this. And so coming up with a name, uh, Michael Faraday, and what we're talking about with electric motors and everything else and, and everything that he was involved with, you just thought, well, I've... I've there's a certain company in the world right now which is doing very well uh, that paid an homage to Nicholas Tesla. Mm-hmm. Hmm, that seems like a winning strategy. We'll go down that path. Uh, but I didn't want to do it exactly the same. So I didn't just want to call it Faraday um, because that just would have been dull. Um, so Faraday, it says... Oh, it flows off the yeah, nicely. We just, yeah, yeah. We'll, give that, uh, we'll give that a try and chewed on it a while and... and came up with some design ideas and what we do with a logo and that sort of thing and combination of propeller and leaves and yeah that's sort of got this eco-y type thing we're thinking about and yeah this this works so we did that and we launched it and uh then i think it was, was it a year later where we suddenly hear of this uh, there was a faraday future uh, yeah faraday future appeared with electric cars that's not gone well. It <laughs> doesn't seem to have gone very well at all. Um, making very big claims that they couldn't fulfill. Um, but it was just like, really? Could you not picked another name? Um, and now we've got the Faraday Battery Challenge, obviously, here mm-hmm. in the UK, which is which is great. But yeah, it really is. It's, it's an homage. Yeah. Um, it just it pays tribute to um, some of our history and some of our ingenuity as a nation. Um, 
but it just puts a different angle on it and puts a bit of a, a lean. So yeah. it's a nice. Oh, nice I, I absolutely like it. Yeah. So so what is the your company's vision in terms of regional air mobility, which is basically the sector that you're trying to almost build that you're trying to build almost and uh, is this maybe harking back to some of the glory days perhaps of the de havilland rapide as well mm, absolutely one of my favorite airplanes i love it i mean the de havilland dragon rapide is just awesome uh, in fact i think we've got on our videos we've got friends of ours who've owned one um and so you'll see it in the back of some of our videos parked up there it's a beautiful piece of kit just lovely lovely way to fly there was a golden age of flying um that golden age of flying meant it was actually a privilege and a enjoyment and a, a great thing to go and do um, and it was an event I mean people got dressed up for it they're in their finest Sunday dappers to go off and fly somewhere it was just fantastic um, and then obviously as that technology expanded and we wanted faster bigger carrying more people and, and every the the economics started compacting things and and so the, the whole aviation market changed um, and that's good and it's bad. It's good in the sense that it opened up the market to more people. So it wasn't a privileged few elite that could fly everywhere. Everybody could start flying. Um, so that's good. What's bad is the fact that because of the push that we had for bigger, faster, further, louder, um, we sort of forgot about the smaller stuff. Now, it is truly bizarre in my mind's eye that in the 1930s, we can fly from Croydon to Manchester or Nottingham or wherever the local flights were. Um, and that is pretty rare now, unless you know somebody who's got a private aviation aircraft, um, which, again, is pretty expensive to operate and, and do. So you're basically talking about distances of around 200 miles, it, Exactly. Miles, yeah. yeah, we forced people back onto the rail and the road networks because we don't have something that should be doing that economically. And people say, but there's turboprop operations out there and, and things. Yes, there are, and there's also turboprop operators who have gone bust. Um, one just fairly recently at Staverton, the city wing, sadly, went under. And, and it is still very hard to make the economics work with current technology and, and bits and pieces, which I think is very sad. And having sold regional jets and sold regional aircraft uh, as much as the, the big wide bodies, um, the model is extremely challenging to make work, which is why so many airlines are always on that knife edge of, of making money or, or going bust. Um, so I looked at this from sort of with all of that, as you say, that background experience type thing of, of looking at different sides to this industry and, and our history with UAVs and such like. And I thought, well, let's reverse this. Why are we not flying regionally? Let's work that one out first. So then it became apparent to me that the, the primary reasons, obviously, noise is a big factor. Um, the moment you mention aircraft, airport, airfield, runway, you mention those words to anybody, within 12 hours you'll have an activist group who are campaigning for the dissolution of your idea. Because anything that creates aeroplanes or airfields is just, nope, not near me, yeah. not in my backyard. Um, so that's, that's a, a real big problem. Number two, and we know that's a problem because if it wasn't a problem, we'd have 20,000 helicopter flights into London every day. Right. So it is a problem. London Airport is restricted in Docklands on noise, on how it should be operating profitably and the, the slots it should be offering, but it can't because of noise. Emissions, rightly so. Um, we are finally waking up to the fact that the most destructive force on the, human pla on the planet is the human being. 
Um, if humans were taken off this planet, this planet would overgrow and there'd be animals and they'd be in their natural cycle and this planet would last for God knows how long. Um, Until the sun explodes. Exactly. Um, whereas we are doing our level best to completely junk it. And finally, we're waking up to that. Um, and I would like the politicians to actually wake up to it a lot quicker, to be brutally honest. There's, there is things that we should be doing to really have a look at this. And it's not a case of you get a, a lot of people saying, oh, this is all climate change nonsense and all this sort of stuff. And the fact of the matter is we are consuming resources at a outrageous level right now. We have um, a desire to speak the good speak and, and come up with these wonderful, yes, we must do this, and then equally walk down the road and go and have a Starbucks and have something that's just chucked a bunch more plastic into the oceans. Um, and we can't burn the plastic because now we need to protect the atmosphere and we start getting into this quasi hole. And, and it's good meaning and we're looking at it from the right perspective, but I think our delivery and our approach is wrong sometimes. Um, so I thought, right, well, let's look at this from the perspective. So we've got the environment we need to look at. We've got this noise issue we've got to look at. But the big one is cost of operations. Like the economics. The again. economics. Yeah. If we are not making a profitable entity that can be used profitably by the, the operator owner, um, then it's pointless. Um, it's just going to be yet another airplane that's failed or whatever. Um, and so, okay, how do we do that? Well, there's all this talk about electric flight. Go have electric flight. It's going to be great. And electric flight is coming. That is, there is no doubt about it. Electric and the electrification of, of flight is coming, and it's really, really good. When is it coming? And to what level? Um, and I mean, when we first started back in 2014, where we were talking about hybrid flight, and we looked at that from the point of view of, actually, we believe that there is still scope for a uh, fossil fuel engine that is a new clean sheet design engine, whereby it burns cleaner, it burns more efficiently, but it could also burn biofuel rather than uh, necessarily traditional jet A. That's great. If we can get an engine that can do that, um, that means that we can use the electric bit for the bit that we're trying to solve. And the bit that we're trying to solve is emissions, noise, and cost of operation. Well, fuel burn is one of the largest costs in any aircraft operation. So all of that takes place at takeoff. So if we can use the electric for takeoff, now we're looking at a scenario where we've got sort of 10 minutes worth of electric flight, um, where you might use five or six minutes for climb out at 1,000 feet a minute or something. Then you switch on to your internal combustion engine, running a biofuel, um, and you're putting some charge back into the battery. But now you're also, by having that combined hybrid propulsion system, you've now got a backup. And as any single engine operator of any aircraft will tell you, be it a single engine airplane or a single engine helicopter, uh, like some of the small light helicopters, when, as the old adage says, when the spinny thing in front of you stops or the spinny thing above you stops, you are now coming out of the sky. Mm -hmm. This is not parking at the side of the road. This is what's called either auto rotation, crash, um, or glide within your glide slope. But you're coming down. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no two ways about it. That could be quite inconvenient, depending on what you're over at the time. Um, so the ability to flick the switch, have reserve propulsion, to allow a educated choice as to where you're going to put down. Um, I know I've got 
five to ten minutes worth of electric power here. Right, find me somewhere where we can land safely. Um, if you're over water, that extra time might get you to a nearby ship, which you know you're going to ditch because you're over the North Sea or something, but at least you're landing next to an oil platform or a ship that can rescue you or something. There was a guy in uh, Hawaii, the catastrophe on the SR, uh, SR-22 ferry flight he was doing or something, and the ferry tank didn't quite work. They had a fault. And Coast Guard are following him. It's on YouTube. You can go and watch it. And he gets he blows the ballistic parachute recovery mm-hmm. into the Pacific Ocean. It's just soul-destroying to see this new airplane going to the water. But they vectored him to a cruise ship. And so he was circling the cruise ship until the thing went, that's it, right? Blow the chute. And it's all recorded on video. And um, I mean, what a great invention again. The ballistic parachute recovery system. Fantastic invention. They've, they've done really well with that. Um, but it, it just basically highlights the fact that if you've got that extra bit of time to go and find somewhere safer, you may walk away from it. Um, which is a great thing. So so what we said, right, hybrid system, it's solving the three core criteria. So if we can reduce our operating costs by 20% or even better, fantastic. If we're reducing the noise, awesome. If we're reducing our emissions, fantastic. If we're giving ourselves extra safety, fantastic. Hybrid is the way for us to go right now. Um, as battery technology then catches up, then it becomes a more electric process. Um, so... That basically was the idea behind it, and we then looked at the design of the aeroplane itself, and we said, okay, uh, it's got to get in and out of a very short space. Um, If you said to anybody, right, you're going to build a new airfield, it's going to be in London. (laughs) Good effort, yeah, good try with that. You're not a hope. Cost of land is too expensive. Um, So... If you're looking at setting up whole new great big expansive facilities, I mean, just look at the price that the Westland Heliport was sold for at Battersea. Huge amount, millions. Um, Anything of that sort of nature is very, very big. So if you're going to land traditional aircraft at the moment, traditional designs, not good enough. Um, If you had choice, you might have something lovely long and elliptical wing and beautifully efficient and blah, blah, blah. You try and rotate that on a tiny patch of land in amongst an urban environment. Mm -hmm doesn't work if you have a huge amount roll and takeoff run it doesn't work you haven't got the space to play with so i thought well working on the joint wing tech that my father was looking at i've seen some various designs in the past models and test models thinking that worked and that thing jumped off the deck like a rocket ship so it's not vertical takeoff. No. You still need to some velocity, but yeah. it's we, a short runway. It's, uh, I think it's being coined now as e-stall. Okay. Uh, let's, let's call it e-stall, electric short takeoff and landing. Mm-hmm. Um, so not e-v-toll, but mm-hmm. e-stall, um, whereby you can jump off the deck pretty quickly. Um, but more importantly, you can land very short. So we, had a, we knew that the characteristics of this box wing configuration would give us some huge high lift, but also slow flight capability. So landing in very short distances. Um, so we've already got numbers of some pretty extreme angles of attack where the thing is still lifting. So it's not stalling, basically? No, at okay. 40 knots. Yeah. Um, we're not stalling at some silly angles. Okay. So yeah. that's a safety thing. Yeah, so, so just to give listeners a bit of an image of what this looks like. So you the, the aircraft that you're talking mm-hmm. about is the bioelectric hybrid aircraft, or BHA for short. Yep. Yeah, and one of the distinctive features, as you just alluded to, is this box wing, mm-hmm. which basically has three airfoils stacked on top of each other. So Staggered. Staggered, exactly. Mm. So talk about the benefits of that configuration, because we talked uh, before about the triplane mm. of uh, Mr. of the Red Baron. Yeah. 
And uh, the first thing that comes to mind from kind of basic aerodynamics as an undergrad is, well, that's insanely inefficient. Too drag. Drag and yeah. all sorts of, sorts of things. So how does this concept differ here? Well, the beautiful thing about it is we've been conditioned over time that we must have sleek, fast, smooth, efficient, blah, blah, blah. Um, all these people have made these decisions and these great statements whilst having to drive to London tomorrow in their car, having to spend an average commute each way of 74.2 minutes into London. Uh, if you want to go from Kemble to London on a season ticket, it's £10,000 for a train season ticket for oh. a standard class. And how long is the train ticket? Uh, the train journey? Two hours. Two hours. Okay. Thereabouts. Okay. Um, you can get it sometimes a little bit quicker, um, but you're not guaranteed a seat. Mm -hmm. um, if you go from Cheltenham to London tomorrow at peak time, and you rush into the station by the ticket, I think you're looking at £247 return. Right. This is, again, about two hours, yeah. Pretty insane. How have we gotten ourselves into that position? So if we look at it from the point of view of, okay, so let's say you take the M4 into London, where you say, yes, I can do 70 miles an hour. But with all the roadworks that we always have, and we have these now 50-mile-an-hour average speed limits, then you get into London itself, and it's congested, and you end up at walking pace for three-quarters of your journey for a lot of the time then an aircraft that could fly 150-plus miles an hour whilst carrying you into London, that actually seems like a much nicer way to, to get in and out of town. That's a lot quicker. If you could get up close to 200 miles an hour, that would be awesome. So we started thinking that uh, the primary thing is the lift. It's the short takeoff and landing capability. But also, if it can do 180-odd mile an hour, great. It's doing what we need it to do, which is to get people in and out the city faster. Uh, it can do it fairly efficiently. Yes, you're going to be a little bit more draggy, potentially. But look at the benefits of what you're gaining. You're gaining a wing configuration that is very hard to stall. Um, you're getting a very high lift capability, so you're able to lift a lot of weight. Now that you start to think about it, and people go... And this was funny, because when we first launched, God, the, the, uh, there are an awful lot of armchair engineers out there. And a lot of critics that will say, this is ridiculous. Staggers the wrong way. Why would you do that? This is we've we've moved on from triplanes and blah blah blah. Um, battery technology is heavy, so if you've got an asset that can lift heavy, guess what you can do? Put lots of batteries in. Correct. So we were saying, saying, okay, it may not be the fastest aircraft in the world. It may not be uh the sleekest or sexiest looking aircraft it's still pretty cool we like it a it lot. looks nice yeah um but it does a job it's been designed to do a job and it's been designed to do a job cheaply enough as an asset in its acquisition cost in the first instance it's been designed to be made cost effectively um, with new materials it's been designed to be quiet it's been designed not to have retractable gear because if you remove that, that's a bunch of weight you're losing. More importantly, if you're only going up to 200 knots, then really if you've got fixed gear or not, it makes no odds. Um, but also, guess what you can also do with fixed landing gear? You can switch them out and put floats on it. So now you've got a float plane as well. Um, you've got all sorts of options there. Um, that Basically, it was the wing gave us what we wanted it to do, um, and that's been proven. And when we took it to Cranfield first for them to look at, the eyebrows went up, and there was like, hmm, okay, well, we'll look at it, but it's not gonna, not really going to give us anything innovative. And they looked at it and went, good grief. Wow, 
it's it's doing some pretty astonishing things. Well done. Yeah. Um, so we knew we had something there, and that was the initial concept design. That was the one that people may have seen in the early days, had the square ducked on the back. Yeah. I, I will admit that was just a little bit cheeky on my part. I mm-hmm. thought that would get people talking, and it did. Um, we had a we had a, a twin propulsion system there where we had the electric motors side fan mounted, a bit like the e-fan type thing, with a, a pusher prop to the internal combustion engine at the back. But we also were talking about ram air, uh, recharge, um, and sort of like a dynamo type effect of, of trying to get some extra charge into the batteries. And uh, we hadn't announced where those were going to be, but it's like the Dragon Rapide had on the uh, top wing that used to power the onboard systems in the wind little propeller. So energy harvesting, yeah. basically. Um, and of course, people were saying, oh, you can't harvest more energy going through the sky to propose. And it's like, we're not proposing that. We might use that to power your laptop charging system on board the airplane. We're not talking about using it to power the aircraft. Similarly, we've got the solar panels on the wings. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to power the aircraft through the sky because they simply don't generate enough power enough to do power, that. Yeah. But if you've parked it in the Middle East or you've parked it in Sweden and you want to turn up to your airplane and it's nice and warm or it's nice and cool, you can use those to power that without cannibalizing your battery power mm-hmm. for propulsion. Um and lo and behold, if we can incorporate the battery technology into the wings, um, guess what you've now got? A de-icing system because they get warm. Yeah. And with a composite wing, you can warm the wing up so that now you don't need de-icing boots because the, the warmth from the batteries is stopping the wing from freezing. Yeah. So that's how we've looked at it. We've looked at it from the point of view of some common sense ideas of what are we trying to achieve, which ended up shaping... The aircraft that we have today and of course that then gave us issues with like um, we're shrouding the prop at the back because of noise primarily but also because every study has shown that up to 200 knots it's more efficient to have a ducted uh, setup than an open prop once you go beyond 200 knots uh, open prop is more efficient so that works for us and we can capture the sound that's great but of course if the aircraft's flying that slowly at times on landing then how do you control it properly without that much airflow over the wings so we decided we'd vector the thrust off the duct and we announced that back in what 2014 2015 mm-hmm. we'd be doing that now several people are talking about doing similar sort of thing but we got the idea basically from the old swamp airboats all oh, right in okay. florida okay. i mean the same principle yeah, florida, great yeah. big flan yeah directional blades on the back you can change the direction so if you're yeah. flying really slowly and you need some stability control you've got the ability to vector the prop wash okay to help in that now how cool would it be when you see a high alpha attack of a aircraft going past on a fighter display, mm-hmm. yeah, how cool would it be if we did the same high alpha but then just turned it 180 degrees in front of you oh, and threw right. it back past yeah. because we got the vector thrust to do it? That's how it is. A little fun. aerial maneuver. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, the aircraft, um, it really is, she is a little bit different. Um, obviously, it's, it's uh, not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. It's not a delta. It's not a canal delta. It's not yeah. super slick. It doesn't go super fast, but it does the job. Yeah. Well, I guess at the same time about the the drag, about the, the triple wing configuration. As you said, you're going 200 miles an hour or 180 miles an hour, and because drag scales with the square of the velocity, drag is probably not as an issue as you have when you're Absolutely. flying, you know, max 0.8. Which I guess, to a lot of degree, World War One, you're flying around those those velocities, 180 miles an hour, and then as you go into World War Two and people are trying to break the sound barrier that's when drag becomes a real issue. Yeah. Now, I just want to wrap all of that together in one thing. So you basically, you're working on a bioelectric hybrid aircraft. Yes. 
And the three important issues here are noise, yep. the economics, yep. and pollution. Yep. And basically, you're, you're solving this by basically almost looking at the aircraft and trying to question all assumptions, radically changing the design, just starting from scratch. So you have an all-composite airframe to, mm -hmm. to reduce the weight. You've got this triple wing, staggered wing configuration for, for high lift. Yep. Um, and you've got a shrouded propeller. Mm -hmm. And then it's also... Uh, hybrid, so you have electric power and you have uh, a, a traditional fuel or even biodiesel or something like that. Yeah. Now, why not go all electric straight away? Well, hey, the biggest problem is is obviously the technology itself. Um, the The technology that exists today is incredibly heavy. Uh, yes, could we do an all electric version of the Bihar? Yes, we could. Um, and uh, there may be at some point, there may be something that will allude to along those sorts of lines. Um, there are, battery technology for me is fascinating. And it's part of uh, my colleague, Jason, he's, he's monitoring an awful lot of what we're looking at on battery tech right now. Um, just in the last two years, battery tech has leapt forwards. We're now looking at different compositions on the batteries. We're looking at uh, super cap hybrid batteries. We're looking at uh, battery technology in the architecture of the carbon composite. Um, it's just evolving real hard, real fast, driven off the automotive industry. And so the standard Toyota Prius battery pack that came from day one, now the batteries are, are just evolving at a, a rapid rate. So that means that full electric flight is coming. Yeah, that's it. Will we will have this battery technology? There'll be some sort of carbide type based battery, or there's going to be something that suddenly makes this a really exciting proposition for up to an hour, two hours worth of flight. Um, but we basically thought, well, it's not it's not fully here yet. Um, what we're proposing as a marketplace isn't really here yet. The whole air taxi regional flight thing um, doesn't really exist right now. Yes, you can do it with helicopters, but only for the select few. Um, it's a very expensive operation, um, so it doesn't really solve the economics argument. Um, same with turboprops. I mean, you could take a Pilatus PC-12 and fly a shuttle service, but your economics are still shot. So by creating this, we're, we're doing something where we actually have got the economics that work. Um, and then as and when the tech comes, we can just keep improving the asset. It's like a platform almost where exactly. you can just plug and play different technologies. Exactly. Especially because I, what I really appreciate about this is that you've gone all composites straight away, meaning you've just mentioned the fact that there are people working out there trying to get almost lithium-ion batteries into composites. Mm -hmm. Now, if your aircraft is already all electric, uh, all composite, you no, no longer have that barrier of going to, from metal Composite, you can just go, okay, well, look, we've got carbon fiber on the aircraft now. Now we're going to go to the carbon fiber battery composite, right? Mm -hmm. And we can just plug and play. Yep. So I think in, in that way, the, the way that you've gone about designing this aircraft is, I, I find is really great because you've thought about almost where the technology is going to go in the future. Mm -hmm. And you've taken that into account and then built the aircraft from that so that you can just kind of in incorporate that, which is, I think, yeah, it's absolutely great. Absolutely. It, it, it's that, um, it is that plug-and-play mentality. It's a case of if the core asset does the job, but it can simply get better as technology improves, well, that means you have now got an economic asset which you've made 
an acquisition cost of that you can just upgrade bit by bit over time, which means, guess what, you can use it over a longer period of time. Whereas if you're tied into a particular technology and that is now old hat, you've got to change the entire thing in order to be com if competitive and effective again. Mm -hmm. Or your whole architecture for the aircraft design is set around that one particular technology. Suddenly it moves on, oh God, I wish we could have done that. Um, so yeah, the logic behind it is that it should just be bolt-onable. Um, yeah. So where we have a, a battery that can do 10 minutes worth of electric flight incorporated as part of the propulsion system. And the beautiful thing about the propulsion system as well, I gave the challenge to the guys with our partners at ProDrive, uh, and they'd made a hybrid engine for uh, a Le Mans project, so it's astonishing. Engine. It's a race car, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and to give you an idea, uh, two-liter six-cylinder engine that was 550 horsepower and weighed 88 kilos. <laughs> that works for me. That's yeah. good. Yeah, and that's I great. knew they'd built this, and I knew they had the the skills to do this. And I said, well, here's here's my vision and plan. I've looked out there. There isn't an engine out there that we could take that does what we need it to do, which is to fly biofuel jet A. And that was another decision we made. Why go jet A? Um, why are we picking that? The reason being that all the major biofuel development work in the world right now is being done for the commercial airlines. Um, you've got companies like Sky Energy and people like that in Holland and, and part of this whole EU clean skies thing. There's an awful lot of push for biofuel, um, which is sort of Jatafra based and things like that. Um, if you can fly the fuel that airliners fly, A, it's cheaper. So Avgas versus Jet A, I mean, it's not even comparable, which is leaded, horrible, expensive Avgas versus cheaper Jet A. Still not as clean as we want it to be. But if we could then fly a biofuel in place of that, again, we're talking about for a period of time, not for eternity. Um, and I do, I have one slight beef. And my one slight beef is with the environmental lobby to a certain degree. Because whilst I'm a huge advocate and supporter of the fact we can be doing things better and cleaner, um, the moment you mention aeroplanes, it's as if you've just spawned Satan's child. So all aeroplanes are bad. Yeah, all bad. Um, as opposed to actually they're not all bad. And actually fuel burn has been reduced. Noise has been reduced. They're, they are improving year on year. Um, but they get a bad rap. Um, and so what we're saying is, look, Yes, we will be using a, a fossil fuel of sort for a period of time, but not forever. So whilst we've got 10 minutes worth of battery now, next year that might be 20 minutes. Uh, the year after, we might be half an hour, but in that same footprint. So the challenge we set was take a, an existing six-cylinder general aviation engine. In that footprint will sit our internal combustion engine and the electric motors and the battery pack. Mm -hmm. So for the existing weight and box footprint of an existing general aviation engine, we will have 300 horsepower internal combustion engine, 300 horsepower of electric motors, and a battery pack sitting in the exact same footprint. That's exciting. Yeah, because is, now, not only are we providing a power plant for the Bihar, we're also providing a power plant that hopefully should just plug and play onto the front end of any general aviation aircraft that runs a six-cylinder general aviation engine, which improves their economics, it reduces their noise, it in, it saves fuel burn for them, and provides more safety for them. So as an idea, that was something we could, and we've never had an intention to become an engine manufacturer. Um, and the prototype, once we've got it demonstrating and flying and showing, um, we would be very keen to, to talk to existing engine manufacturers to 
to make that a certified reality. Yeah, I mean, you raise a good point there as well that by pushing the boundary, in this case, you were talking about the engine, but mm. the same argument could probably be made about other parts of the technology that you're working on, let's say noise shrouding or something like that, mm -hmm. where because you want to fly over urban areas or into urban areas, let's say, the requirements in terms of bringing noise down is much greater than for an aircraft that just lands at Heathrow, you know, a couple of miles outside of London. So if you develop technology that is great in terms of noise shrouding, mm -hmm. who says that that technology doesn't, you know, end up on, on a big jet that lands exactly. at Heathrow? So in, in this case, you know, pushing the boundaries basically is, is a win for everybody. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm trying to think of how this will basically work. Let's say, you know, we're in Bristol right now, mm -hmm. and if I want to fly anywhere, I have to take a bus up to, to Bristol Airport, mm -hmm. and some company will fly me around the world. So mm. how do you envision this developing in the, in the future? Is an aircraft, will these BHAs, will just, they'll just land in Bristol somewhere? Will mm -hmm. it be kind of like an aerial taxi service, kind of like an Uber-like service that I can just hail a ride? Or how do you Absolutely. see this developing? Yeah. And, and this comes back to the economics things. I mean, without wanting, I mean, it's been funny because when we launched in 2014, we were one of the first groups out there. Um, and we were very honest. We put out there what we were talking about and what we had planned for the future. And lo and behold, umpteen companies around the world have now started replicating, saying, oh, look at us. And many of them have been thrown an awful lot of money um, to do that, which we've already been talking about for a long time. Um, but we see the, the market whereby, go back to the economics argument. If you've got an asset, you have to make the asset work. So in the morning, it's going to take off and take people from Bristol to London. It's then going to bring those people back from London to Bristol. Well, that means that in between those times, you've got a whole range of things you could be doing with the aircraft. You could be doing pilot training. You could be doing surveys. You could be doing uh, medical flights. You could be doing all sorts of things that in between those times that can generate you some more revenue. But also, if you've got it sitting on the deck and it's effectively paid for itself for the day already, then yes, you can pick up your phone with your four colleagues who've suddenly got to now go to Nottingham to have a meeting and you need to be there for tomorrow morning, and you really don't fancy driving or anything else, and how much is this going to cost us? And you go onto the app, find out. There's one sitting at the local ramp of the operating base of wherever that's going to be, and you've got Filton just up the road. I mean, what more perfect place could we use? Mm. Um, but if not, then put floats on it and fly it off the, the lockout here and in the, the centre of the town. Right. I mean, if you look at every major city in the world, they've all got f water next to them. London, big river going through the middle of it, uh, New York, uh, L.A., and water's always there of San Francisco Bay, for crying out loud. Um, so you've almost got man-made runways sitting there that don't really get used by mm -hmm. much. So things like that you can use. It doesn't necessarily always have to be about VTOL. And I know everybody's excited about VTOL at the moment, which is great, and it is going to be exciting. And there are some really cool little aircraft. I mean, we've been talking to the guys at Folocopter and watching how they've been doing. They've been doing some great things with that little thing. We sat in that a couple of years ago, and... Uh, but again, there's a classic example of the German-British uh, thing where they've just gotten $90 million worth of support from Daimler Chrysler. Mm -hmm. um, and where industries in Germany and other countries, they embrace their SMEs and their startups. Um, here, we generally, a lot of the bigger companies have an idea of how they can cut their legs from under you rather than bring you under the wing to support you, where at some point in the future, they may go, you know what, I really like that. We're just going to merge you into our company and, and buy you out. Um, <clears throat> so from that perspective, uh, our vision is very much that, yes, you will be able to hail these aircraft. Um, if there's one available at the airport, it should be cheaper 
and it should be as simple as getting on a National Express bus. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you envision this to be almost like autonomous or semi-autonomous in the future? Yeah. I, mean, I guess drones right now fly autonomously, so could it, you exactly. strap that onto these systems? Yeah, we've always intended the aircraft to be autonomous capable. But this comes back to the equation again of um, bless them with the, the best intentions in the world. Some of the tech companies with their over-enthusiasm um, for, yes, we can. And that's the great thing about the American culture, which I love. Uh, yes, we can. Yes, we can. We'll, we'll look at how we can do it. You do have to be real in how you look at things. Uh, and you do have to say, right, okay, autonomous is great. However, when autonomous goes wrong, what are the command and control procedures? Now, that has been just more... You couldn't have given a more clear example of the problems as what's just happened in Phoenix with the Uber car that smashed into that, that cyclist. Uh, I mean, she didn't stand a hope. Not a hope. I mean, that thing hit her at a rate of knots. Um, and the problem is now they now are going to have to change things to put up a wider radar defensive area and, and fine-tune it to see more threats and everything else. And you know what's going to happen. The kids are going to be stabbed by the side of the road and they're going to jump out in front of a car and it's going to hit the brakes and the one behind it's going to hit it. I mean, mm-hmm. there's all you can see where this is going. But what it highlights is the technology delivery is not the big problem. You then have the infrastructure. Where are you going to operate it? How are you going to operate it? How, if in an autonomous environment... What happens? When we first started this project, we actually saw it more from the point of view of if you're on board with your loved ones and your trusty pilot who you've known for years has a heart attack and you're flying over the channel at the time, it's like, oh, anybody know how to fly a plane? And if you don't, you're falling out of the sky Mm -hmm. and you're all dead. Um, Sadly, uh, I saw that firsthand with family friends of ours who were killed in a light aircraft accident at the airfield just up the road. Uh, they were killed on final coming in and went into the trees when the, the pilot had an issue um, and left their daughter. And so I thought about this and thought, well, if you had that panic button whereby you hit the panic button, which engages the autopilot hold, that opens up a comm link with our ground control station. And they then say, what's the nature of the problem? Our pilot's got an issue. We take control of the aircraft, fly it to the nearest airfield. Emergency services are waiting for him. Um, or her, and um, we can then fly you back to your end destination um, by one of our remote pilots, or it could be done autonomously. Um, If you look at the airliners of the world now, they're doing so much of the flight now autonomously. Um, The pilots are really there as the sort of hands-on, if this all goes horribly wrong, I take control of it. Uh, And that's the way the future is going to be for all the air taxi business going forward. It will have to have a pilot which is going to be disappointing for the guys who are currently got the two-seat aircraft that are all fully autonomous and this is all going to happen. It isn't. You've already just destroyed your economic model by the fact that you're going to have to put a pilot in one of those seats. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why we looked at having it possible to have autonomous capability as and when the regulation comes in and we work with the regulators to set the boundary layers of where does it operate. How can we absorb all these extra vehicles into an existing national air traffic control system that's already struggling? How do we have command and control procedure that once it steps out of its corridor box, who takes control of it? How does it get held? If it blows its parachute, where does it land? And when do we choose to blow the parachute in order to bring it down? Or what those systems are? All of that has got to be gone into. We've got to write these regulations, got to get stuck into it. This is a this is a five to ten year process. Yeah without any sweat whatsoever and i guess this is also where you know a lot of the safety of the aircraft or the airspace industry comes from is that we do have regulations where they need to be 
and these are not regulations that just you know nobody just thinks them up you know while while on a stroll somewhere these have these regulations of reasons because mm -hmm. bad things have happened in the past and they will continue to happen in the future and this these things will have to be thought through properly absolutely um, i mean that ties in as well quickly with the uh you talk about timing uh when certain claims and they've reined it back now when they uh, certain groups launched after us uh, with their visions for a 100-seat electric aircraft by 2025. Uh, yeah. They need to go and sit and talk to the guys at Mitsubishi and Bombardier and these guys who are building 100-seat regional jets just to see just how long it takes with the certification process, yeah. the Air testing. Airworthiness takes a while. I mean, it's, yeah. it's so long. And it is not done from a point of view of trying to be a negative Nelly or trying to be... Uh, restrictive of ideas it's done because this is flying above people's heads mm -hmm. if your car conks out on the road you pull over to the side of the road and there's hopefully you're not going to hit much you drop a hundred people from ten thousand feet uh that's bad and that can end up also involving a huge number of people underneath it so they do these things and they they have to be thorough and they have to uh, set these regulations to make sure that everybody is safe um, that means it takes time. So, no, we're not going to have supersonic flights by 2025. That's not happening. We're not going to be having uh, commercial electric, 100-seat electric flights by civil aviation by 2025 because we haven't even certified the electric process and the systems on board that are authorised to do it and, and the at least two to three years' worth of cold weather testing, Arctic testing, hot testing, all of that stuff that's going to be happening before these things get certified. So that is a 10-year window at the earliest, I think, to be fair. We are working on it now. We're starting now. Um, and it is exciting. It is where it's going. But we all have to... All of us in this part of the sector of the industry have a duty of responsibility to be sensible about what we're saying. There is, in light of the post-2008 financial crash... Um, we have a duty of responsibility to turn to investors and say, you know what, this is what we believe we can do and how we can do it and by when. Not, I'm going to tell you that I can go to the moon tomorrow mm -hmm. if you give me $400 million for me to do it. And then tomorrow you say, yeah, actually it's going to be the end of the week. And then actually it's going to be the end of the year. And actually I'm, I'm five years actually away from it. I mean, what you've done is commit fraud. You have deceived investors. You've come up with... Uh, a means to attract money as opposed to saying, look, this is our plan. This is what we intend to do by here. We have a step-by-step -step process in which we're going to achieve this. Um, and if you join us on the journey, we will limit your exposure and risk to our key performance indicators. We hit that, we get the next tranche. We hit that, we get the next tranche, mm -hmm. and on and on. That's the way I think we should do business. That's the way I think that investment should work. Um, and that's how we structure our business. Yeah. I mean, we've said to investors and our angel investors, we want to do this by then. The environment we're in in the UK makes that very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we're doing, we're, we're moving forward. Yeah, you're definitely moving forward. And on that regard, I mean, last of all, what I've read on your website is that you're in the stage of the, the final aircraft design, optimization and propulsion development that that has begun. So what is the current state of the project and how will it develop over the near-term future? Because I think you are... Pretty close, you know, just for, for some for some big announcements. So, mm -hmm. what is what is the stage of the project as of now? Well, it's fun because um, 
I mean, last year we obviously advised, uh, we were part of the future flight policy with the British government, um, the advisory council. And so when you are in a room of people who have never heard of you before, don't know anything about what you're doing and, and how you're doing it, and, and we haven't funded or done anything with this yet. No. How have you done this? Well, we've just done it because we know how to do it. And we, we do it the old-fashioned way. We're grinding it. We're bootstrapping it. We're, we're using resources as best we can from lots of different companies. So whilst our company doesn't have huge amounts of resources, our partners do. Um, and so we basically have said uh, the engine and the propulsion is key. That's that's the cornerstone to this whole proposition. It's the thing that solves the three criteria the most. So that engine should be up and running by the end of this year. All going well. Um, we hope to have flight trials by the end of next year of that system. Um, and then that is the cornerstone element to building. <coughs> it's the wrong thing to say, but let's call it a plastic airplane okay. for argument's sake. Yeah. Okay. Um, the Dreamliner is called a plastic airplane, so I can get away with it. Um, building a plastic airplane actually isn't that difficult. There are composite airplanes out there. It's not a hard science. The uh, systems on board, the acoustic profiling, the avionics, the um, uh, protective cell, for example, in the cabin, these are technologies that we're working on that will go into the Bihar. But basically, these are all technologies we're going to deliver over a period of time in the next sort of two-year period mm -hmm. to a point that by 2020, 2021, we're looking at making the first flying prototype full-scale of the Bihar. I think that obviously the um, the propulsion side of it is, is really exciting. And that should be, uh, yeah, all going well. By yeah, the end well, of the year. I really look forward to seeing the Bihar fly in the, in the near future. Not half as much as I will. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful for your time today, Neil. Um, one final question. How can listeners find you online, Faraday online, and the Biha online? And perhaps for engineers that uh, are interested in working on your project um, now or in the near mm -hmm. future, what is the best way to, for them to, to, to find you? Well, obviously, um, first thing, the website, yeah. I mean, faradair.com, F-A-R-A-D-A-I-R.com. That's the, the first place. Um, we have on the YouTube channel that we have, we've got some videos, um, gives some background information on, on what we're doing. But um, we've started work with Swansea University. We're going to have an R&D center down there doing some of the optimization work. So um, students who are there existing may have opportunity where they can work on the project. Um, and people who are even thinking about joining us. We uh, There's a very famous uh, line and quote, I think it's from The Untouchables, if I remember rightly, uh, talking about Elliot Ness's team. Um, when they were going to find, when many cops were corrupt and they needed guys to form part of this anti-corruption team against Al Capone, um, they said, well, instead of going and picking a rotten fruit from the barrel, <coughs> go and pick it from the tree. So we want to get an awful lot of young people involved in this project. Um, STEM is a big push right now. So um, well, obviously Dr. Ben Evans down at Swansea is involved in the Bloodhound project. That's driving huge interest in engineering and, and yeah. things. I mean, a car can go a thousand miles an yeah, hour. Yeah, so the Bloodhound is a supersonic car project, yeah. basically. Incredible. A thousand yeah. miles an hour on the ground. I mean, it's just yeah. utter lunacy, but it's British and it's ours and we're going to win it and we're going to do well. It's, it's awesome. I, I wish the guys the best of luck with it. Um, but uh, getting people involved at the young ages, getting more people involved in the STEM subjects, getting them, uh, we're going to have apprentices. When we're up and running, we're looking to create 500 jobs. We're basically looking to bring manufacturing of aircraft back to the UK um, in, in addition to just obviously the guys at Leonardo who build helicopters. Um, we need to be building aircraft here again. It's what we do well. 
Um, so bringing people through who are students, PhDs, who can work on projects and then not just see the end result of their thesis, but actually then go and work on it, take it forward, put it into commercial operation and work on the next bit. So in the company, you can then say, right, we've done that. Right. What's the next challenge we've got? Right. Okay. This is the next bit. VTOL or whatever, whatever it's going to be. That's what we'll, we'll crack at. So we start expanding the company. Um, uh, and so contact us through the website. Uh, info at Faraday.com is an email that uh, will get put to the right person. Um, but going to places where we've got programs like Swansea um, will be will be a great way to get involved in the program. Um, and also our partner companies. I mean, people like ProDrive uh, as a motorsport engineering, advanced en- engineering company. Um, they've got composites facilities that are second to none. They've got aerodynamicists and engineers and on working on the engines and things. So that w- even if it's not directly working on a Bihar particular piece of kit, uh, it might be more with the avionics for our system or partner companies that we work with that we can um, bring people in. So things like the internships and the apprenticeship, I think, is very important. But also one thing I will say as well, we have a a personal drive, which is we want at least half of our workforce, uh, if we can, uh, to be former serving veterans. Um, That's just a personal thing. Um, And it's a a big cornerstone for our business, whereby I personally believe many of our former serving veterans get a truly rough deal. Um, They, when people talk about courage, um, somebody has decided to put on a dress and that's hugely courageous. Now that way may well be for them. But when somebody has had all four limbs blown off um, and they're having to rebuild their life, uh, that's a different level of of courage, um, which I don't believe these people should be abandoned. I think um, people should be given the opportunity. And and where they've been put in situations for uh, our overall benefit, um, supposedly according to the politicians, then basically it's our duty to then help a lot of these guys re-amalgamate back into civilian life. Um, we believe with our aerospace campus that we're hoping to build where the manufacturing will be it will it'll be a sort of like a, a base stroke barrack type environment that a lot of these guys will feel comfortable in that gradually over time they then sort of amalgamate back out into civilian life and they deal with some of the issues we've got support services and resources available um, but they're also some of the most dedicated staff members you're ever going to get um, because they they know how to just get on with the task at hand no matter what's thrown at them yeah. Um, so we really want to mix a lot of the young, in- enthusiastic, um, blue sky hunters. I mean, we have enough grey hairs in this sector that tell us how things were done in the 1960s. That is good because I'm a big fan of history telling us lessons of we can look at what didn't work in history. We can look at what did work in history and we can learn from that. So it shouldn't be ignored. There's many companies that just ignore the past and go, oh, look what we've done. We've created this. Yes, but I mean, I think the last one I saw was uh, the, what was it, the design? There's an aircraft design that was uh, a sort of convertible, parrot, there's the parrot drone thing that goes vertically and then converts into forward flight with fixed wings. I, I know what you mean, but I, I, the, the name doesn't roll off the tip of my tongue. It's the right Convair now. Pogo from 1955. Right, yeah. I mean, it's the yes, same principle. To some degree, yeah, yeah, um, so there are lessons out there. There's historical stuff that we can do, but sometimes people think, oh, look what I've invented. Well, no, you didn't. <laughs> it's, it's an evolution, yes. Yeah. Um, and I like that, and I think that we can 
bring an awful lot of that thinking. But I want people to be thinking outside the box. Do as we did. We looked at the scenario and go, what are we trying to achieve? And for that end, I think we can return academia and how academia works with aerospace and these types of things. So instead of everything being led by academia, where tons of money is put into academia, and they then go and try and find a problem to solve, mm -hmm. if government was uh, a little more forward-thinking and decide to take a portion. So if you had 300 million available for aerospace innovation, you took 20 million of that and broke that down into either 20 parcels of 1 million or 40 parcels of half a million, whatever, and give it to small innovative startup SMEs to take them from TRL level 2 to 5, some are going to fail. You're going to accept the fact that we're putting a high-risk strategy here for a fairly small chunk out of that 300 million. But if just three or four of those companies succeed, we're talking multipliers in terms of return because it's the aerospace industry and the, the numbers involved in that are huge, that it makes it worthwhile. And therefore, those companies who get those funds, they could be specified, you must spend 40 to 60% with academia. You don't get those funds. Those yeah. will go straight to the academic institutions. But you can then set those institutions the task of what you want them to solve, mm -hmm. which is great for the academic organization because it's like, right, we've got the resources. We can solve that. This is the problem. Yeah. We're at it. And it's also impact for academia, which is what we're always looking for. Exactly. How, how do our kind of solutions and our concepts go to, you know, filter through into, in, in, into industry, basically? Exactly. Yeah. But it also allows some of that truly truly blue sky research stuff to fit in Correct. as well so yeah it, it's a it's a nice dynamic that i think we just have to look at these things a little bit differently and if we do then uh it works but it requires all people from all angles and it's requiring bays to look at this differently it requires innovate uk to look at this differently the government to look at this differently most importantly and the brexit issue um yes it creates some problems um but it also creates opportunity and there is absolutely zero point in us getting to next year and saying, right, here we are, Brexit Day, wonderful. Right, now what are we going to do about creating some of these? But we should be investing now. Now, you've got the industrial strategy, which supposedly is doing some of this process. But unfortunately, much of that is still tied to the old way of doing things. Here's the application, here's the forms, here's this, here's this, here's this. You fill up and you've spent 14 months applying for £100,000. We can't do that anymore. We've got to do things differently. We've got to streamline the process down. We've got to make sure that projects can stand on their own two legs for their very personal merit of their project, i.e. is the management team right, is the concept right, is the market right, is there proof that there is demand for this and everything else. And if that all stacks up, why should you have to enter a specific competition that's focused on autonomous transport which is limited purely to land-based vehicles. Why can't you do an autonomous ship or an autonomous aircraft mm. or whatever? Mm. We have to look at this slightly differently. And if we do that, we will compete with every nation in the world. And we will trade with every nation in the world. And we will create partnerships with other com companies in other countries. But we've got to suddenly get out of our slightly prehistoric mentality of how we've done things in the past. This new aerospace sector is not dominated by the tier ones. That's going to pain them. They're fighting against it. They think that every aerospace innovation event has to have a representative from Airbus, Rolls-Royce, GKN, etc., blah, blah, blah. 
let's expand that network. Let's bring in the SMEs, the startups and everything. Let's really start getting some different thinking whereby instead of seeing opportunities that are created as threat, see them as wonderful opportunities where these companies can be involved in under the umbrella and some of these bigger brands can go, hey, look, let's see how we can help you with this because ultimately we think that's a really exciting project. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'd love to see happen and uh, yeah. we're on the road. Yeah, this is the Grassworks uh, kind of idea that I'm really enamored with, which is basically you don't really know what's going to work. We're all just tinkering away, you know, trying Absolutely. to make our ideas uh, you know, a reality. And a lot of times you don't know which one's going to work. So just fund as many as you can with small amounts of money. And then you'll be able to basically capitalize on the fruits of, of everybody's labor, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah fully so good. Neil has been super inspirational. Thank you very much for your time. No um, and yeah, I will show notes will be available on the website. And I highly recommend everybody check them out. So thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Take care. If you want to learn more about Faraday, then you can find show notes with links to more in-depth material at airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. There you'll also find more information on our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering, and the world-leading materials technology conference that SAMPI is organizing in Long Beach, California. And if you'd like to personally support the show, then please subscribe or leave a review on iTunes. Share the show with your friends or become a patron on patreon.com forward slash airspace. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.